the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Uh, during the course of the session, you have any questions, you can use the chat box. And to answer your, uh, there will be a few questions. You can write your answers. Let us participate in this session freely so that we learn from one another. We have completed five chapters and now we are in the sixth chapter. What we have from chapter six, uh, chapter six from verse one to eight two, you have the opening, the seven seals of God's scroll. That's what we see. In fact, sixth chapter is the place where the main action of the book uh, properly begins. Now, the chapters extending from chapter 6 to 11 uh, basically talks about the struggle of the church in the midst of conflicts and persecution. That's what we find in from chapter 6 to uh, 11. All this in the six chapters, what we see is how the, the struggle of the church, there is persecution, there is suffering, and then we also find the judgments of God. Now, John follows a certain uh, kind of outline in all these six chapters. Uh, from, that is from chapter six to 11. Uh, you know, uh, he, has, he has arranged in such a way, it almost, if you count, there'll be seven scenes, seven different scenes. As, as the lamp opens each of the seven seals. Now, in this case, the first four seals will be opened. They will be opened at once and it will together make up one picture. First seal, second seal, third seal, fourth seal. It, I said, John has arranged the material in such a way, there are seven scenes. So when he opens the first, second, third, fourth seal, it, it counts as one scene. Then the fifth and the sixth seals are open and that will also count as one scene. And in between uh, the sixth seal and seventh seal, there are some intermediate material, and then comes the opening of the seventh uh, seal. When the seventh seal is open, then there is an introduction to a new series of visions. That's what we find when the seventh seal is open. There we find the blowing of trumpets, because when seventh seal is opened, then we come across the blowing of seven trumpets. Now, the trumpets more or less repeat the revelation of the seven seals. It's almost a repetition that we will see uh, when we come to the trumpets. The only difference we could say is they present it more from God's standpoint, God's viewpoint. Uh, again, the same outline is followed. The first four trumpets, as though it's one scene, then the fifth and the second, together they form another scene. And there are some intermediate visions. 
finally to the last of the trumpets. In other words, John is arranging the material uh, into seven scenes. Now, this John has tried to put it in order. It looks like a little bit of complicated and it looks like a, uh, as though John is repeating things. Uh, but at the same time, not only has put this material together, he is also developing his themes, what he wants to tell us. Now, the problem that you and I face is uh, the sequences strictly not in log in a logical order. What do I mean by logical order? See, you and I have been introduced to the Western type of study. We call it as linear thinking. One, two, three, four, five, six. This is how we proceed. If you want to tell a story, how do we tell a story? We, we tell a story from the date of birth, then uh, the early childhood, childhood, then adult, the teenage, adulthood, then marriage, then children, then retirement and death. We, we go in this order. That's what's known as a logical order or a linear way of uh, thinking. This is a Western type of thinking. Now, since we all are used to this Western type of thinking, when we study the book of Revelation also, we think it is logical. It is following some kind of a linear order. Now, the Semitic mind, the Jewish mind doesn't work like that. For that matter, if you have had a chance to hear stories from your uh, grandmother or great-grandmother, they are not interested in a linear fashion. If you, if you go back and if you listen to their stories, and if you had a chance like that, uh, they are not interested in linear order. They will not tell the story the way you tell. Date of birth, early childhood, student days, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, then work. That they are not interested like that. The grandmothers used to tell stories that somebody was born in a place, then they will immediately shift. He married so-and-so. So what is so important to them? For example, uh, if, uh, if a Jewish mother, uh, grandmother was to tell the story of Jesus, it will be something like this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and when John the Baptist baptized him, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. You know, one fine day in the, in the Lake of Galilee, there was a storm. His disciples were with him. And then he got up and he calmed the storm. And then what happened? You know, when the Herod, the wicked man, he wanted to kill all the children under the age of two. So Jesus went to Egypt. Now you see, if, if you are going to listen to the story and if you're going to put it in a logical order, uh, that's not the way story has been told. So story is being told for its importance. What the storyteller feels what is more important rather than fitting into a chronological order. So when we are studying this seals and trumpets, we should not think this is the Bible says, so this will be the first step, this will be the second step, this will be the third step, fourth step. No, that's not the way things will happen. 
so John here repeats because that is a way of uh, education earlier days. When something is important, they try to stress that. So they'll try to repeat it. In fact, repetition is a way of teaching. If you want to impress something on the minds of students, a good teacher will repeat that. Uh, so even in this uh, book, so John is going to repeat certain things because he thinks it's important from his point of view. So now when we see the seven seals and the seven trumpets, they essentially tell the same thing. Each time emphasizing one or another aspect of the whole. So when we are studying, we should not think this is different, that's different. We should try to find out what is the point that John wants to emphasize in this particular place. So that's what we'll be seeing. Now, in chapter four and chapter five, in chapter four, we found uh, God the Father seated on the throne. And in chapter five, we saw worship being given, uh, you know, lamb being worshiped. And now chapter six, now the scene shifts from heaven to earth. Now, as the each seal is broken out, what is written on the scroll is not read. It is only acted, acted out. Uh, we don't get to find what's written on the scroll, on the scroll, but only it is being acted out. With this as a background, now we'll proceed to chapter six. Now, when we come to chapter six, verses one to eight, uh, let's read this slowly and follow the story so that as we expound, we'll be able to understand. I watched as the lamp opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamp opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamp opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamp opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, the first four seals, uh, they're unified by a common image in the sense of the vision of the four 
horsemen. Uh, that's, that's what we find in these eight verses. Now, this is an imagery that has been adapted from the book of Zechariah, because in, I'll show that also in Zechariah chapter six, uh, verses one to eight, uh, follow this carefully. I looked up again and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white and the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, why are these my Lord? The angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going toward the north country, the one with the white horses toward the west, and the one with the dappled horses toward the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go through all the earth. And he said, go through all the earth. So they went through all the earth. Then he called to me, look those going toward the north country. I have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the difference between the horses in Zechariah and Revelation? because I said the author has borrowed the imagery from the book of Zechariah. So what is the difference between the horses in Zechariah and Revelation? You can type out your answers. Uh, whatever answer you have, you can type it out. If you want to tell you or speak out your answers also, you can unmute your mic and tell, speak out your answers. Now though, uh, yes. Uh, though this vision, uh, the features have been borrowed from the book of Zechariah, because the colors are the same, red, black, white, and dappled gray. The color is the same. But, the, but John only borrows the symbol of the horses and their colors. Uh, in the book of Zechariah, these horses were yoked to chariots. Uh, but in, in the book of Revelation, on each horse, there is a rider. And our interest is in the rider and what he does. That's what, uh, that's what we are looking at in the book of Revelation. Uh, now, the vision of the four horsemen begins when the lamb who has already taken the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne begins to open the seven seals one by one. Now, the first four openings, in other words, the first four seals, when they're open, they're marked by common features. Now, what are those common features? Each is preceded by an utterance from, the, from one of the four living creatures. Each one, first seal, second seal, third seal, you find in the second seal, the second living creature, the th third seal, the third living creature, and the fourth seal, the fourth living creature. 
And with that utterance, what we get to see is a horse and its rider. Now, to some extent, this is partly explained. But each of the scene is very small. It's for a brief moment. It is just, it's a matter of two, two verses for uh, each scene. So it is very brief, it is very small, and it is compact. None of the four horsemen uh, says a single word. We don't get to hear anything from the riders. Each rides forth in silence. So there are many puzzling aspects. We do not know in which direction they ride. We do not know in which direction they ride. We do not know they ride from heaven to earth or from one place on earth to another place on earth. We don't know. Now, these are all puzzling aspects. So what is the significance of this vision of the four horsemen? So we, we struggle to find out, but uh, we will not be, um, at least uh, I will not be able to give answers to all the questions because it remains a puzzle because of the brief moment that we get to see. There's a brief description. So if you ask too many questions, at least the text does not give us the liberty of finding out the answers. Now, one of the features that we find uh, that differentiates the book of Revelation from the other books of the New Testament, uh, keep this in mind carefully. Now, in, it is only in this book, the author tries to fit, uh, to show how power fits into divine scheme of things government power, military power, economic power, how it all fits into divine scheme of things, which we don't find in other uh, New Testament books. Now, John is absolutely, he's certain that all power comes from God. All power comes from God. Irrespective of the party in power, whether they believe in God, they don't believe in God, all power comes from God. God is the absolute ruler of the world. John has no doubt about it. That's why he has given us a glorious vision of God the Father in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. They are seated on the throne. Nothing escapes their attention. Now, because... All power, we also agree that God is the absolute ruler of the world. But then because God gave humankind the free will, there is always the possibility that we might misuse the portion of the power entrusted to us. There is always a possibility because God has given the free will. Power belongs to God. And whenever that power is entrusted to a human being, because he has the free will, there is always a possibility of misuse. We need to understand this very carefully. 
because the book of Revelation is also telling us about the contemporary things that what we are seeing right now in the 21st century, it speaks to people of all generations. Uh, now, this does not mean uh, God is helpless. Uh, and it does not mean God is frustrated. He does not know what to do because he entrusted power to human beings and it is being misused. The world is still God's world. This world is still God's world and it is still ruled in accordance with the eternal laws of right and wrong. Uh, you know, the way God's power, where, now the question comes, if somebody misuses that power, what happens? Because this world is being controlled. The world is still under God's power. Now, how, how does God control when somebody misuses the power? Uh, when somebody misuses the power, there are consequences. Now, all wars, famine, and death, in other words, suffering, disaster comes when somebody misuses their authority. People in position of authority, when they misuse, they have to face the consequences. Of course, the entire nation will suffer because of their misuse. Uh, but still God is in control. Even though human beings abuse their power, God still reigns over this world. Now, these are the judgments God has worked out. Power has been given to you. If you misuse, this will be the consequences. There'll be war, there'll be famine, there'll be suffering, there'll be pestilence. You know, you will have the consequences but this is what we call as judgments of God. Uh, so knowing we should understand as we go, uh, as we try to understand these visions, seal one, two, seal three, seal four being opened, we should always remember God is seated on the throne and is in control of his world. Whatever plan he has for the world, he will accomplish it irrespective of the fact whether there is a dictator or a good person in power, God will have um, his way. Now we go to chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I watched as the lamp opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, who does the rider on the white horse represent? Who does the rider on the white horse represent? Master, I have... Um had uh, read this uh, okay somebody asha has put it as jesus and um, i remember reading it uh, long back can i say that yeah yeah um, you know i think it's from billy graham's book um, armageddon or some one of the books he said uh, that uh, jesus is a gentle lamb uh, 
uh, and uh, here it talks about conquering. It's uh, it's a kind of uh, deception, okay, where they go about conquering and to conquer. That's what he was mentioning. I remember reading it. Okay, somebody else is thank yeah. you, Pastor. Somebody yeah. else. Uh, uh, Kruso, Gautam, and Asha. Oh, sorry, Divya, Gautam, and Asha. Jesus, Jesus, yeah. Jesus who conquers. Okay. Uh, this is what many commentaries will also say it is Jesus Christ because you have in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus will come riding on the white horse. But here it uh, doesn't seem to be Jesus because of when you see the company, what's going to happen with the second horse, third horse, fourth horse, this does not uh, represent Jesus. Then if it's not Jesus, what does this white horse represent? Uh, there is a white horse. Uh, that's very clear. There is, an, uh, there is a rider. He is having a bow. He's an archer, basically. And uh, the moment a, a Roman reader, if he reads this, there's somebody, an archer, is going to, is coming riding on a white horse. Basically, in those days, when John wrote, it was only Parthians, Parthians who had this, um, this kind of white horses. And white horse was considered as a sacred symbol for them. And uh, they were, uh, uh, the, the mounted archers were the specialty of Parthians. And, and they were on the eastern side of Rome, and they were well known for their tactics and skills. And in fact, the Roman government, if they feared somebody, it was the Parthians. So Parthia was a formidable neighbor on the eastern border of the Roman Empire. Now, what is suggested here is uh, there is going to be an invasion that will meet with success. It's not going to be a failure. It's going to meet with success. Uh, that's the first horse. Let's go to the second horse, Revelation 3 and 4. When the lamp opened the second seal, I heard the living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. So what does the fiery red color represent? Bloodshed. Somebody yeah. said Asha has put it as war. Yeah. Divya Crusaders. Yeah. The red was the color. Rachel, everyone. War. Yeah. The red was the color most associated with war and bloodshed. Uh, so this horse symbolizes war and bloodshed. And to him was given a large sword. And he was also given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. So you can imagine the condition uh, with the second horse. Now with the third seal. When the lamp opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. 
Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now the question is, what does the black color represent? Famine, Pastor. Well, what did you say, Sister Cynthia? Famine. Famine. Okay. Rachel has put Scarcity. Scarcity, yes. Rachel has put us famine. Famine, yes. Uh, we in India, I thought we are very familiar Catherine, with this. What, what's the answer, Pastor? Fear, fear from Catherine. Okay. Uh, we in India, we are very familiar with this black horse because uh, black horse literally represents black market. Uh, in other words, what you said is famine, scarcity, all comes because of black market. I think last month when we went to the doctor, he said uh, COVID-19 medicines are being hoarded and being sold in the black. So black basically represents black market. And whenever there is black market, there is a scarcity. It could be an artificial scarcity, real scarcity, but black market will always uh, will, uh, result in scarcity of commodity. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand, basically to show there is an economic uh, 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 scarcity. Uh, that's what his rider was holding, a pair of scales in his hand. And then there's also explanation in this particular case, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. Uh, usually a denarius is a day's wages. Usually a denarius could purchase eight to 16 times more grain than the amounts mentioned here. So you can understand the impact of the black market. So it is an economic crisis, and uh, this particular horse represents that kind of thing. The, actually, the warfare. There was, uh, you know, the red color horse, war and bloodshed. And uh, normally, in any country after war, if a, if a nation has been at war with some other nation, and if the war is a severe one, what follows war is always inflation and famine there will be shortage of things. If a country is at war for a long time, uh, there will be famine. There will be shortage of items that you need. Now, God has used famine as a means of judgment in the past. Uh, all these things may be consequences, but in other way of uh, explaining that is God's way of judgment because if all power belongs to God, and whenever power is misused, uh, it ends up in this kind of uh, judgment. Now, in the Bible, we have several references to say how God uses um, economic crisis as a means of judgment. In Leviticus 26, 26, when I cut off your supply of bread, 10 women will be able to bake your bread in one oven, and they will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. Uh, from different books. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1. See, now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water. Jeremiah 16, 4. 
they will die of deadly diseases they will not be mourned or buried but will be like dung lying on the road ground they will perish by sword and famine and their dead bodies will become food for the birds and the wild animals Haggai chapter 111 I call for a drought on the fields and the mountains of the grain the new wine the olive oil and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands so everything that we have we have received from god uh we don't have to come to a place where god cuts off the supply and support and then we cry out but we need to realize everything that we have he's god who is seated on the throne so though we work hard with our hands with our mind we work hard it is god who has to bless our effort and everything that we have it is from him that's why we call our god as jehovah jireh our god is the one who gives everything that we need uh, now we go to the fourth seal uh, revelation chapter 6 verses 7 and 8 when the lamp opened the fourth seal i heard the fourth living creature fourth living creature say come i looked and there before me was a pale horse its rider was named death and hades was following close behind him they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth now if we read uh, the kind of judgment there's a list of judgment sword famine and plague now this is not the first time we are reading this kind of judgment in the book of revelation it has always been there in the old testament so where do we find these references zakariah 66 zakariah 66 then 63 63 where else ezekiel 52 somebody has given the answer pastor oh ezekiel rachel okay ezekiel yes ezekiel yes it's there it's there in the prophetic books is there in thank you for the answers it's there in uh, jeremiah 14:12 although they fast i will not listen to their cry though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings i will not accept them instead i will destroy them with the sword famine and plague jeremiah 24:10 i will send the sword famine and plague against them until they are destroyed from the land i gave to them and their ancestors you may find in ezekiel 6:11 this is what the sovereign lord says strike your hands together and stamp your feet and cry out alas because of all the wicked and detestable practices of the people of israel for they will fall by the sword famine and plague ezekiel 12:16 but i'll spare a few of them from the sword famine and plague so that in the nations where they go they may acknowledge all their detestable practices then they will know that i am the lord now the fourth horseman we saw that its rider was named death and uh, his color obviously was a pale horse uh, 
or in some places you will find dappled gray. Basically, it's a color of the dead body, a decaying flesh, that's the color. And Hades was following, the ruler of the graveyard was following death. Uh, it's just telling them what kind of situation, because what has happened till now with these four horses, you had uh, in a war, major wars, there was uh, you know, so many people were killed, and there was famine, and then you had plague. Obviously, then what is to follow is death. And that's what we have in the fourth horse. And uh, they are, and to add to all that, they say the wild animals uh, of the, the wild beasts of the earth, there is no one to bury them. So the wild uh, beasts of the earth. Now, these are the, Four seals have been opened. Now, in the beginning itself, I said, John firmly believes that all power comes from God. God is in control of everything. Now, this is the word of God. Now, this word of God is not only applicable in the first century, it's applicable in the 21st century also. And it will be applicable if God, uh, Lord Jesus tarries. Uh, it will be applicable till then. That's the word of God. Now the question is, is there any connection between the four horsemen and our time? Because we have to always, as we read the Bible, we have to struggle with this question and try to find out. Uh, if God is seated on the throne and... Is there any connection between the four horsemen and our time? Now, we have seen all these disasters that we have seen are the result of God working out God's righteous law for the universe. Uh, listen to this carefully. God does not approve of famine and death and hell. God does not approve. God does not approve. God is not pleased when people die of famine and uh, God doesn't approve all that. But they are what must follow if people persist in opposing God's rule. In fact, it is not God who pushes people to hell. It is people who make a choice to go to hell. We should be very careful. It is not that God is pushing people. He's a merciful God, loving God. He's not pushing people. People make a choice to go to hell. Now, whenever people persist in opposing God's rule, consequences must follow. God, in fact, God desires there is a community of God's people who care for each other, who love each other. That's what God wills. That is God's desire for humanity. Now, God has also created these, uh, this world uh, with certain righteous laws. Now, let me talk about physical laws. Now, we'll be able to understand that clearly. Now, if we ignore physical laws, 
uh, we will all face the consequences. Let us take the law of gravity. Now, if I were to jump from a multi-story building, and if I say, my God is my savior, he's my strength, he will save me, and if I jump from a seven-story building, uh, they'll only collect my dead body or a fractured body, whatever it is. Because God has created this world with that gravitational force. So according to the gravi gravitational force, anything, and if I jump, I have to fall. I will not fly upward. That's the way God has established this land. So if I persist, no, I'm a great believer. I know God will hear my prayers. Uh, you remember the temptation of Jesus? The Satan showed everything. You fall from this, you jump from this place, God will send his angels to guard you. It's written in the Bible. And the day Jesus answered, do not put the Lord your God to test. Because Jesus knew there is a gravitational force. If you jump, you'll only jump at your cost. So God does not approve of famine and death and hell. It is because people, they neglect God's rule. Whenever they neglect God's law, there'll be consequences that'll follow. In the same way, moral loss. Uh, you know, we increasingly, we hear uh, people even before getting married, they get into a physical relationship and comes pregnancy, then they want to abort. These are all the moral laws. Whenever we oppose the moral law, there are consequences that follow. And here too, all these woes are basically the consequences for people resisting God's moral laws, physical laws. Whenever we neglect God's command, God is interested in righteousness and justice. He is interested in righteousness and justice. And uh, God does not will the woes. But as long as we are free agents, God allows them. Because we are free agents, because we don't follow God's law, uh, so because we don't follow God's law, there has to be consequences. As I told you about the physical laws, I told you about moral laws. Black marketing is what? You want to make profit at other man's cost. You want to, you're greedy. When somebody is greedy, he wants to hoard things. There's shortage, there is famine. Uh, that's what happens. Uh, why, we, why we are very scared about privatization? Because their motive will be profit. Uh, they are not interested in the well-being of the community. They are more interested how much of profit I'll generate. Uh, companies are running after their balance sheet. How much profit we can make. Uh, at times, they compromise on ethics. So in the long run, they will have, you know, it will have its own uh, consequences. Now, all the four horses, basically, they are brilliant little descriptions of God's judgment working out in history. And it keeps happening periodically. 
you talk about Hitler's regime, you talk about Stalin's regime, you read history, uh, you, then you will realize. And uh, you will realize whether consequences should happen or not. You read the Pol Pot's regime in Cambodia, two million people were killed. So there were consequences for all this. So the judgments are constantly working out in history. Uh, this is what happens in the sphere of politics also when men, whenever men and women oppose the will of God. You know, we, we have seen powerful leaders. You read the history from, even the latest history you read, they were powerful. There were, you know, no one to question them. And we all know what happened to them in the end. They are no longer, uh, no. Uh, so, and it also happens in the sphere of economics. We think we have developed, you know, if one percent people, you know, I believe in the States, it's one percent of people who almost control the economy. And uh, if there are people without food, uh, that's what is going to happen in terms of uh, uh, economics. The economics will fail because there is so much of greed and uh, uh, we, we are required to follow God's law. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, this chapter in the book of Revelation speaks directly to our time. Where if you read new uh, books, you take newspapers, you take magazine articles, you take radio broadcast, uh, we read and hear about these four horsemen of the apocalypse. It is, you can relate so well that when you read, because when you read it in isolation, you will tend to question, is God really in control or not? Because that's what's happening right now. But you will realize that when you read with, against the background of chapter six, God is still in control. Consequences will follow, may not now, but it is, it's going to come because these four, four horsemen, they basically tell the story. They're still on the move. So they're still executing the judgments. See, we always hear the cry for justice. People are crying. There's so much of discrimination. There's so much of injustice. People are literally crying. Is there someone who will hear, see my plight? Is there someone who will listen to me? They're crying for justice. And so when we hear this kind of cry for justice, we, from, from a heart we feel, you know, there must be a, some kind of judgment. The guilty people should not be able to escape. There should be some kind of judgment. Every one of us will feel you know, it is only the comfortable people may not like the language of this chapter. Everyone who has faced discrimination, who has faced violence, uh, who has faced uh, economic poverty will always be so happy to know that God is going to vindicate them. You know, people who have been oppressed, people who have suffered, and people who have put trust in God, when they read this chapter, they will say, hallelujah. They'll be so happy. At least one day there's going to be a vindication. 
one day there's going to be a judgment. So that's what we see in the four, uh, when the four seals were opened, John presents it as one uh, scene. Now we go to Revelation chapter 6, 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Now, do the souls under the altar signify anything? Do the souls under the altar signify anything? What's the answer, Pastor? Persecuted saints. Martyrs. Saints, martyrs, yes. Is there any more significance beyond this? Beyond this, is there any other significance? Uh, I have underlined that under the altar, is it not a strange uh, phrase? I saw under the altar the souls of those. Okay. Uh, the blood of sacrifices was poured out at the base of the altar. If you remember, the blood of sacrifices was poured out at the base of the altar. Because when you open the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. Now I've seen Leviticus 4.7. Uh, the rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. In Leviticus 5.9, the, the rest of the blood must be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. And in Leviticus 8.15, you will find Moses, he poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. Now, so it all shows that the martyrs were viewed as sacrifices. The martyrs were viewed as sacrifices. Now, interestingly, souls were visible to John. Now, don't ask me uh, how did he know it was soul, what shape it was, I don't know. But John was able to see under the altar the souls of those. Now, whether souls have a shape, they, what color, I don't know all that. But John was able to see the souls uh, uh, in his vision, uh, in the apocalyptic visions, people generally, they're able to see souls, but we don't have any description of that. Now, in the previous scene, uh, in, in, in the earlier part, in chapter 5, when the lamp was praised uh, by the heavenly host, the 24 elders, we saw that they were seen holding golden bowls of incense, now, in, in this fifth seal, when the lamp breaks the fifth seal, we find the souls of the martyred Christians are under the altar in heaven, crying out for divine vengeance upon those who shed their blood. Now, in the book of Genesis, whose blood was crying out? 
ஸ்டாலின் uh all port region mausidang all all this when you see that uh god will vindicate them so here we see they called out in a loud voice how long sovereign lord holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood uh, basically they are not calling for revenge as such these souls are not crying out for revenge but they are so uh, they are protesting something that is sinful dishonoring to god and destructive to creation anything that affects the glory of god they are crying out for that kind of vindication because even when stephen was stoned to death he said forgive them and he here the souls are not saying that you know people who kill me should be killed that's not the question that's not the language basically they say that this kind of suffering the sinful condition uh, we know that there's a fallen world oh lord how long will you t- how long will you wait give us back the world where there is peace there is no sin that's that's the cry then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been uh, remember church is not going to be just plucked out from the scene uh, to protect us uh, uh, there is no such promise until the full number of their fellow servants in other words the church will undergo persecution read the verse carefully until the full number of their fellow servants their brothers and sisters were killed just they had been if you are going to live uh, in that kind of a feeling that you know before the trouble comes god will pluck me out that's not what the bible says we will face this church will face persecution it will face conflict troubles but god will be with them and so god gives them a white robe basically signifying purity victory and service uh ultimately justice will be done and the oppressed people will be delivered only when god becomes the judge of the earth we will never find perfect justice in this world till god becomes the judge of the earth you go to any court you will come out regretting what they say they will give us they'll give us justice but where is justice so human judges cannot give us that kind of justice only god can give us justice uh now the sixth seal is broken and there's a great earthquake the sun turned black like sackcloth made of uh, goat hair the whole moon turned blood red and the stars in sky 
the sky fell to her earth as figs dropped from the fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. Now, this is all this imagery is uh, taken from the Old Testament, and I'll quickly go through those imagery. Uh, in Zechariah 6, 12, 13, you will flee as you fled from the earthquake. Now, John is writing to the people who are very familiar with the earthquake. When we uh, studied the letters to the churches, we have seen their cities have been destroyed by earthquake and how they rebuilt. So the earthquake, they knew what's going to happen. So they were very familiar. Uh, in Haggai 2.6, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Uh, then in Revelation 6, 12, 13, which we're seeing, the sun turned black, the whole moon turned blood red. Darkness was always an Old Testament judgment. Darkness means it is a judgment, and especially the judgment in the end time. Because Amos 8, 9, in that day declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon, and darken the earth in broad daylight. Uh, I'll just take five minutes extra and finish this chapter. Uh, please bear with me. Joel 2.31, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is all Old Testament imagery. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth. Now, if we imagine that stars are going to fall from the sky, and um, you know, scientifically, if you study how big is a star, how far it is from the Earth, this, this is not a literal description. This is a poetic way of describing. Let's not teach our children, stars will fall from the sky. It will fall on the Earth. Let's not teach them. This is a poetic way of telling because when they study science, then they will understand the implications, what this means. This is not science. This is just a poetic language. Uh, the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is basically from Isaiah 34.4. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved. You know the number of stars in the sky? billions of stars and the heavens roll up like a scroll all the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine like shriveled figs from the fig tree it let's not literally um, translate this this is just a way of uh, telling <clears throat> uh, in other words you know it's it, you can call it as a cosmic convulsions it's 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 something that's happening in the cosmos there is shaking and the tremors in the cosmos, basically to describe the social and political upheaval. Just to describe that, the entire country is against the ruler. It is just to describe that uh, it is put in terms of cosmic uh, convulsions. Uh, so don't say the stars will disappear and all that. Now, this, this is one such prophecy which was fulfilled in Jeremiah chapter 4, 23, 26. Uh, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty and at the heavens and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking 
all the hills were swaying. I looked and there before no, there were no people, every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before this fierce anger. If you read this passage carefully, basically the prophet is telling about how the foreign invaders will come and destroy their land and which has happened. Uh, so this is precisely what is denoted by the details of this highly colorful language is difficult to determine. We will not be able to tell the details. But one thing is very clear. He's telling how the unrepentant world, uh, they are so terrified when these things happen. Because in Revelation 6.15, he will say, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hidden caves, and among the rocks of the mountains. All classes of society, for the people, it's not poor, you know, the generals, the princes, great people, the rich people, the mighty people. They, they are hiding from the presence of God. We think when God comes, when Jesus comes, people will go to him, oh, they will run. They will hide themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountain because they want to escape the punishment. Uh, they are not going to repent. The unrepentant world will try to hide itself. Uh, that's what in Revelation 6.16, they call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, God, in other words, today the emperors are persecuting you. Remember, you will be vindicated. It is the very same emperors and the governors who judge you now. Uh, they will call to the mountains and to the rocks, telling, fall on us and hide from us from the face of him. He's basically writing to the persecuted church, and the churches will always, down the line, down the line, will undergo persecution from time to time. And God is assuring the church people that their persecutors will be judged and they will run to the mountains. And then he ends, uh, this is basically from uh, Hosea chapter 10, 8. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills, fall on us. So this is the way he ends the chapter, 6, 17, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? It's basically from Joel 2, 11 and from Malachi 3.2. Now, till now, the lamp has opened six seals. The first four seals were like one seal, and the fifth and the sixth seals. And now, uh, by the time we go to the seventh seal, uh, there is an intermediate visions. Basically, it is to assure that God's people will be will be secure. God will protect. Whoever is persecuting you, God in his own time will vindicate you and will bring judgment on them. Thank you so much for giving me that extra five minutes. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, we can quickly for the next two to three minutes, then we'll close the session.
Pastor Catherine has asked, how did John find the writer's name? Is there a paradox in the fifth seal events? John saw the souls of the sacrificed people, but later verses talk about living people. They cried, given robe, were asked to rest. What does wrath of the Lamb signify? You want to answer, Pastor? Yes, Pastor. The, the first one, how did John found the writer's name? Um, you know, the the Bible here tells us now, I saw John and opened the, uh, sorry, when you open the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and see another horse cried out and was granted to the one who sat on the peace on earth. Uh, third seal, uh, come and see, look, behold a black horse, there's a pair of scales and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures. See, this, these are the color of um, uh, the, uh, what is that? Um, the horses. Now, the rider's name is not given there, but um, can you tell me where the rider's Fourth name is given? Verse 8, Pastor. It says, Verse eight. Um, See, uh, it is. Uh, uh, it's like you know, you look at someone who's uh, who's very sickly. We can always say, you know, he's on the deathbed, okay, and uh, you know he's very sickly, he's very thin, you know, he's almost dying. It's not that he is dying. So when when John sees a vision, it's not necessary that he has to see a name, and uh, he is able to recognize that this is exactly the death, okay, that is uh, coming, and uh, that's why he's able to mention the name. And I go back to the third one. What does the wrath of the Lamb signify? Uh, it talks about the judgment. Okay, when the uh, when the judgment happens, you know there is no security for the people who do not know the Lord. And uh, there, as Pastor said, there's a security for us. And uh, then uh, verse second, Pastor, you want to answer the second one? No, no. What's the question? Is there a paradox in fifth seal events? John saw the souls of the sacrificed people, but later verses talk about the living people. There is no paradox. That's the way the uh, scenes have been presented to us. Now, why you should see the four seals together, four horses together? Uh, that's the way it's presented and that's the way we take it. There's no paradox. Uh, it's basically to say that God has not forgotten people who have, been, who have died for him. Their souls are crying out. Uh, basically to say that uh, God is mindful of all the people who are undergoing persecution. And it will continue to happen, but they are very secure in God's presence. Um, some of the things um, is uh, we should, um, uh, we can't go into exact details, okay, into each uh, uh, of the uh, things. We can't go into the exact details. Uh, we can draw a picture. It is like, you know, you, you take a picture, a scenery, you take it close uh, uh, to see the scenery, you won't be able to see the whole picture, you know. But uh, if you keep the picture afar off and see, then you can see the scenery. It is like this. And uh, the whole picture will be unveiled only a little by little, but uh, we'll be able to see the whole picture that God is there on the throne, there is evil, and God will judge one day. And uh, we will be safe. Those who believe in the Lord, we will be safe. That's the whole picture that God is trying to uh, convey to us through these uh, different images. Some more questions. 
there's one more question is there a timeline to each of these events rachel has asked uh, there's no timeline in fact i said uh, chapter 6 we can very well connect with our contemporary events mm. these are all ongoing whenever the physical laws of gods are contravened the consequences follow moral laws are contravened the consequences follow so it is there's no timeline as such uh this is basically to tell us you know because if god has to wait for this judgment till the end time then you can Im imagine the proportion of uh, evil that will be in this world if people like hitler were to continue in power uh, for a number of years what will happen uh, how many more how many millions i i don't know what's going to happen to this earth so there is a judgment that happens in this world periodically we can see that uh we can with our own eyes we can say now we have seen regimes coming and going people coming to power and being thrown out of power god is still seated on the throne pastor uh, in verse 6 uh, it says do not damage the oil and the wine what does that mean? uh basically uh, see they were more interested in the staple food uh when there is poverty uh, you are more interested with rice uh, with with uh, barley and wheat and other kind of things uh this is this oil and wine basically it's rich man's food uh it it is also uh, what happened is people um, in 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 those places they instead of sowing um, or instead of growing this staple food they started growing um, you know all trees and uh, the other things so that they can export and make money out of it but when it comes to the daily necessities they had to literally import now in the ancient near east if you study their warfare system uh, even when a enemy uh, force comes and attacks another country they will not destroy olive trees and other things they may uh, destroy wheat barley and all they will set it on fire they will destroy but they will not destroy completely because they are not trying to occupy a country just like that they want to have some economic returns now it is said for an olive tree to produce fruit it will take at least 17 years so even an invading army will not destroy olive trees uh but olive oil was not what is what's more important for them what was more important them uh, important for them and their children to survive is uh, wheat barley okay. and with the kind of uh, things that are mentioned 2 pounds and uh, it is very little and i don't know 2 pounds once in a month if somebody is going to get 2 pounds of wheat once in a month uh, i don't know uh, how they are going to survive because there is shortage and those days it is going to be a large family so you can imagine with their days wages how they be able to feed their family thank you pastor okay there are no more questions uh, thank you so much uh, we'll just say this verse as a closing closing prayer to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb 
be praise, honor, and glory, and power forever and ever. Glorious Father, we thank you. We praise you, O Lord. We bow before you. You are seated on the throne, and our lives are under your watch, Master. You are a merciful God. You are a mighty God. We always want to be under your wings and under your shelter. Be with each one of us, protect us, guard us, and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, unfailing love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit remain with each one of us now and forever.